Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson. I'm the host of the show. And if you are listening to the show on Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, then, uh, man, there is a lot going on in the world. And so, obviously, today is election day for those of us here in the United States um, and those who are Americans around the world. So what I do hope, what we do want to encourage you to do is exercise your voice and your right to vote today. Um, and we hope that you either have done that already or that today you get out and uh, and use that right to vote. Uh, but more particular to our context uh, here at ETC, uh, November is also uh, National Adoption Awareness Month. And so uh, I've, I've seen over the last couple of days um, on social media folks kind of um, talking more about it uh, as it is the month of November, but uh, just some history for us here on on that front. Um, If you're not familiar with uh, what it is, over 15 years ago, um, the Department of Health and Human Services began National Adoption Awareness Month, and it sets aside every November as a a time to educate on adoption and raise awareness for thousands of children and youth waiting for adoption in the U.S. foster care system. So uh, we've linked an article on the history of NOM in the show notes for those who would like to learn more about it, and I'd encourage you to read that. Um, just to just to be um, aware of, of the background and, and the history there. Um, we want to l- listen for those most impacted by adoption, which are adoptees. Um, this month can be a time that it brings up a range of emotions. Um, it can be really difficult. So in staying true to our mission here at ETC, um, we're spending the whole month of November on the podcast, listening to the hearts and stories of adoptees who are part of transracial families. And so uh, in this first episode, you're going to hear from Ramya Gunaizen and her uh, friends, the Hams, uh, who also happen to be ETC parent trainers and um, transracial adoptive parents in St. Louis, um, uh, we were actually introduced to Ramya through the Homs, and um, and and you're gonna love you're gonna love getting to hear um, uh, her perspective today. Ramya's as well as the Homs. Um, but over the over the following three episodes, so Tana and I are gonna be talking exclusively to to guests who are adopted transracially, and um, I, I want to just encourage everybody who is listening today, uh, the absolute best thing that you could do as, um, as our guests share their hearts and passions and plans and hopes and, uh, and pains and all of that, I just invite us to listen. Just listen and, and give credibility, give dignity, and give uh, a place of truth in your heart uh, to their voices. And so as we elevate their voices, we're just asking you to listen with a heart that's willing to learn and, and then if need be to make changes to your thoughts, beliefs, or actions. Um, and as always, obviously, you know, our hope is that uh, this time together that, that we spend here in the podcast will be a time that inspires and challenges us to live uh, more deeply connected lives together. And uh, at a time where it, it feels like the world's on fire, we could really use it. So that's November. It's the ETC podcast, and now Rami Grunizen and Dr. Chris and Leslie Hom. All right, and here we are today with uh, Chris and Leslie Hom and Ramya Gernison, and they are here uh, to talk with us about transracial adoption. We've been talking for a few weeks now about how uh, we're going to kick off a conversation about that. Um, Ramya is an adult adoptee, and we'll let her share her story in a second, and Chris and Leslie are both uh, transracial adoptive parents, and uh, we've also got Tana Ottinger with us from ETC today, and uh, so we're just going to have a conversation about transracial adoption and uh 
all the ins and outs of it uh, as much as we can. And so uh, thank you all both for being here today and um, taking time out to talk with us. Our pleasure, JD. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Rami, why don't we start with you? Would you mind just kind of sharing uh, your story as it relates to adoption and, um, and a little bit about who you are? Yeah, absolutely. So again, my name is Rami Gernizen, and I was adopted from India when I was 15 months old through an organization called Love Basket. And my story kind of starts with infertility. My parents struggled with infertility for seven years. They adopted my older sister, Leah, um, domestically. She's adopted from Louisville, Kentucky, and she's Caucasian. So it's kind of been interesting because we have two very different adoption stories, but we both are adopted. And then they decided to adopt internationally. And I grew up in St. Louis. I have, to, I have two sisters and a brother. Um, my mom works at a private Christian elementary school. My dad's an electrical engineer at Boeing. So I grew up in a, a really, I, have privileged, I would say, privileged household. Um, I went to a Christian elementary school, Christian high school. Um, I have an educational background in exercise science and public health. And I work in the health sciences department at Lindenwood. And over the last, I guess, probably the last year, really, I've started to navigate my adoption story and my feelings on adoption. And it kind of stemmed from seeing people around me and I would say the white Christian community navigate interracial adoptions. And it, it kind of triggered me in a lot of ways. And sure. I found myself feeling strongly about things. And so I started journaling about it and kind of pouring my heart out on paper and that led me to writing this article that to me was kind of aggressive and raw, but it was truly where my, where my heart was. Yeah. And I sent it to my family and they were like, this is amazing. People need to read this. And um, then I started sending it out to a variety of adoption. I think I just Googled adoption agencies all over the United States and sent it out. And I got an incredible response and people wanted to talk to me and people wanted me to work as a contract writer and people wanted to feature it. And so I would say that me navigating my adoption story is fairly new, but it's been, it's been really like amazing to kind of see what's come of that. That's awesome. I mean, that's how we were introduced to you was uh, Chris and Leslie shared that article with us. And, um, and so for, for you listening who are not familiar with this, um, Rami's article was why adoption may not be for you and adopt these words. And we're going to link that in the show notes um, for what, you know, so you can look in the notes down there and, and, and uh, go read the article for yourself. Uh, it is brilliant. And I, I made the comment to you before we recorded, like, I can't believe you're not a professional writer. Like that's not, you have a whole other career <laughs> besides that. Um, but it is really, really great. And so I want to come back to that in just a second. Um, Chris and Leslie, before we get too far, will you guys share your story as it pertains to adoption? And then, and then maybe we can talk about how you guys know each other. Um, yeah, our um, adoption story kind of, or our story kind of started, we have um, one biological child. And when she was about 12 months, we started the process um, for adoption uh, um, through an agency here in St. Louis as well. And so we adopted our son. And then um, a couple years later, we adopted our daughter. And both of our adoptive children um, are African-American. And so, um, yeah, this um, topic is near and dear to us as well. And Ramia, we initially got connected, I think, through her her mom, who is the librarian at our kids' elementary school. Oh, okay. And so that's how we initially got to know each other. And her mom and I were talking talking as transracially adoptive parents and just our um, perspectives. And then um, 
uh, she was like, I would love for you to meet my daughter. And then Rami and I's friendship has just grown over the probably past couple of years, Ramia. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And just, I, she's a wealth of knowledge, um, just for our family and for so many others, just with, um, being a transracial adoptee, especially in this time and space and culture and area that we're in, I think. Okay, so I think given all of that, given given y'all stories together and how they mesh together, Chris and Leslie, had there been things from your relationship with Rami that you would point out, uh, you know, even try being well-read as adoptive parents and um, being kind of in these communities for a while, that your relationship with Rami kind of opened up different perspectives from what you already had when it came to adoption? Well, and to me, it's it's been all about, you know, we knew this before, but to really drive home just the idea of flexibility and, 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 and that any child, any adopted child is not going to fit neatly into any demographic, any, any, any like everyone's different and how they view the process is going to be very much their own story. Um, and we don't write that story for them. Um, that, 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 that's their perception. That's the reality. And um, we as parents have to be on our toes not just ready to hear that, but willing to hear that and uh, making a, a safe household so your kids can tell you this stuff um, and uh, feel comfortable saying, hey, I feel this way. And, and you know what? This is really hard for me. It's probably hard for you as parents, um, but I need you to feel, I need you to hear it. I need you to feel me in this. And um, yeah, I, I think that's been like the main thing that have been very uh, humbling in a good way. Yeah. Well, so Rami, back to your story. I mean, you mentioned growing up with uh, siblings who were adopted, who had been adopted, but were also Caucasian. And so um, I don't want to assume. So what we talk, tell us, talk to us about the makeup of the school that you were at growing up. And was that, was it a diverse school? Was it a predominantly white school? Like where were you in that space as you were starting school and having siblings that didn't look like you and, um, and having to navigate that? Yeah, so I would say that I grew up in a pretty white community. Uh, the school I went to is incredibly diverse now, and I would say it was pretty diverse then, but it's still, I don't know, I think there was maybe four or five African-American or people of color in a class of maybe like 20. Okay. So um, I would say elementary school was okay, but like my church was white, my parents, like it was a very white world, and and then I went to a private high school and it was even like I was even it was a smaller community of people of color. So there wasn't I don't know. I was oftentimes the only person of color like in a given space at times growing up. Yeah. And did, was there a moment you can think of that like that began to be noticeable by you or like what do you have early memories of like of, of realizing that and, and just being like, Oh man, like looking around like, Oh gosh. Yeah. It, that's an interesting question because I think that it was always present. It just manifested itself differently for a long yeah. time. I, I would feel things, but I didn't, wasn't able to identify what I was feeling. So there were things I would do growing up that I didn't know I would do like walk into a room and count how many people had brown skin like me. And I didn't realize I did that until adulthood or wow. just being yeah. like drastically aware of like, people are looking at me or like just little things. I feel like I always felt that. I just didn't, I wasn't able to articulate that for a really long time. When you say that you started even noticing you were doing that, like, would you mind sharing a little bit 
from your perspective on when you began to even reflect back to, oh, I was doing that. So was there something that transpired in a season of adulthood that sort of helped you? Yeah, Yeah, honestly, all of, a lot of this has been in like the last couple of years, um, a lot of realizing how things make me feel like an example of this is, so we have extended family in Minnesota and one of my cousins was getting married and I would, I didn't know any of their extended family on the other side. And so I got to the reception early and my first thought was someone's going to wonder like who this girl is that wandered in here because I'm the only person of color. My family knows that this family knows that, but the groom's family and his aunts and uncles don't know that. And it's like, yeah, these are things I think about. And it led to a lot of really hard conversations afterwards, but it was good and necessary, but that's my world. Like my parents don't know that I think that way. My siblings don't, you know, like Mm. I feel like there are times where I'm just like, do people know that I'm actually a cousin? Like I'm not just like a significant other or some random person, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's hard. So you mentioned the article. One of the things that has helped you with uh, navigating that has been mentoring and counseling. Do you want to share some of those experiences with us? Yeah. So I started going to counseling when I was in 12th grade and I've been seeing the same counselor. Um, and I literally don't think I could live without her. (laughs) She's just been a crucial part of me navigating my story. And what's been really interesting is I went to counseling for other reasons. It wasn't to navigate adoption and trauma, but that's what it became. Yeah. And I didn't know, my parents didn't know that trauma affects everything and that, you know, uh, my relationships are affected. I have anxious attachment that affects who I date and how I date. Like there are so many things that I learned in counseling and it all stems back to adoption. And so it's been interesting because the first couple of years of counseling, my counselor was like, we need to talk about adoption. And I was like, nope, don't talk about adoption. And I wasn't ready. It was just like, I can't, I don't even know what is behind those stories if we navigate right, that. If, right. Am I able to navigate that? And then finally I realized we had to start talking about it. And we did EMDR therapy, which was really, really helpful for me. And I just, it, it was very crucial in me navigating my own story to be able to like process that with someone who is not only safe, but is like certified and competent in how to process that with you. Yeah. Yeah. So when, let me save that question for a little bit later, actually. Um, so Chris and Leslie, when you guys are, um, as y'all are navigating this season of um, parenting, there's COVID happening and there's also uh, an intense conversation about race that's, that's been happening, should have been happening for 400 years and has now uh, continued to like, come back up to the forefront in waves and we're in one of those waves again now. Um, have you, what have the conversations been like in your household around, um, at, you know, as a, as a mixed house of both, you know, white people and African-American people living in the same household together? Like what have your conversations been like this summer as you kind of navigate this space? Well, well, and, and, uh, go ahead. No, you're good. Well, yeah. And it, it's a lot. And, 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 and honestly, the, the, the first reality is, <laughs> you know, when it comes to handling race is, you know, for, for, for people who are of color, you know, we, 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 uh, we as white people have the benefit of saying it comes in waves, but for people of color, the conversation never stops, you know, like, like that, really that, yeah. that reality is there day in, day out. So, um, you know, we as parents have to be diligent about making sure that from our standpoint, the conversation never stops. 
um, because if because if you if you wait on it, it's it's, it's too late. Um, so I, I would I'd say like that's like you know yeah like, like, like our 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 our, our uh, um, brothers and sisters of color like it, it's tough for them um, obviously. But uh, but I would say like to, to, to that end, like I'll give, I'll give you an example of a conversation we had, uh, and, and and they're hard. So the, there was a uh, a marsh that was that was near our house um, several months ago, and uh, we, we went down there because we want our kids to see it and uh, hopefully feel supported, but also to to mourn with them. You know that that, that, that this is going on, yeah. and as we were, and they had a their, their Black Lives Matter sign there, and they were sitting next to sitting next to the uh, the march. Uh, completely silently, um, our our white daughter and our, and our African American son, and there's watching holding the sign there, and um, a, a a news camera uh, came by and, and took their picture, and uh, it was it was it was posted online um, with a comment section, uh, and you all know how comment sections are on the internet, oh, and, and 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 our seven year old daughter asked what seven year old daughters ask. She goes, "Mommy and Daddy, I bet people love that picture. I bet we're going to be famous. You know, like this is." This is really, really great. And my wife, to her ever-loving credit, you know, was very humble and said, well, honey, to be honest with you, like a lot of people online did not like that picture. Um, and a lot of people thought that it was a, a bad picture and a sad picture and that you were forced to do this. And that's, um, um, and, and that's, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, but, but, but I mean, like these kids, they, they, they get it. Like, 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 like they, they pick up on this stuff and, you know, if you clean it up for them, it's easier now, but there's a cost later and it's hard. Right. Yeah. Well, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, Leslie, I was going to say, will you, for people who uh, will be listening to this and go, what the heck, why would she respond that way to her seven-year-old? That's crazy. W- will you kind of explain your response there? Yeah. Um, and my background is education and I do a lot of child development stuff. And so I think that for me, I wanted her to know that in this space, for us, and we're always learning, right? As white parents with black children, like we will forever be learning and humbling ourselves underneath um, people of color and and black people, especially because our children are black. But I think that for me, I sat in that space and it would have been way easier for me just to say with the heaviness of that moment, because both Chris and I are like crying in that moment. It was shortly after Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd, and it's a block behind our house, right? So it just felt very real. Um, But I thought in that moment, I thought I could say, yes, I'm very proud of you. You guys were so bold. Like, right. I could have just did that, but instead I would, I needed her to know as a white advocate for her black brother and sister that she also has a role to play in this space whether she's seven or 17 or 77, I need her to know that that is forever her job. And so I just said, you know, the reality is kind of what Chris said, you know, that I just kind of put the reality of both and, right? Like we are in in this space, no matter whether we want to duck out as white people, we can't, right? Like we're in this space for them. And so even with people in our church saying that's not okay, even with people in our schools saying that's not okay, even with people in our country or in our neighborhood saying that's not okay. For us, it is okay to stand for our black sister and brother all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, So Ramya, this, I would imagine the same conversation hits a little bit differently, like being from a different country as opposed to being from 
within the country here. So like, uh, how has that conversation felt for you this summer? And, and, and as you've navigated that with all the different layers that exist within your family, how, how has that felt for you? It's been hard because I have brown skin and I'm a person of color, but I also have white privilege, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so it's been really interesting to navigate that. And I've, yeah, I've just, I think it's just been hard, but it's also opened a lot of conversations. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how does this make you feel? Like, where do you identify? And I feel like it's hard when you come from a white family and you have brown skin and people might mistake you for being black, but you're not. So it's just, it's, it's a very interesting spot. I feel stuck often. Yeah. Yeah. So when you mentioned kind of growing up, having, having white siblings, what, what were your relationships like with your siblings growing up? And uh, yeah, will you mind telling us about that? So all of us, all of our siblings are, we're really close. We're all really good friends. Um, the older three of us are all like about a year apart because okay. of some of us are adopted. And so we grew up together. We did a lot of things together. I have a great relationship with them. They're my best friends. I think one of the hard things was the fact that my sister Lee and I were both adopted, but our stories were so different. So there was never a lot of common ground there. Okay. And I kind of, I put that in my article, like my opinion on adoption or like the way that I would encourage people to adopt transracially is to adopt two children. And so there was a layer of empathy and understanding with Leah, but at the same time, there, there was a lot that was drastically different about our stories. Yeah. And did you, as, as y'all have talked, if you got older, was she, did she ever experience a lot of the same feelings because of the same dynamics? No. And, and I think that's because she's white. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess along those same lines, if you're thinking about advice you might give toward families who were considering transracial adoption and they, they have not gone through the process yet, but they're, they're in that space of thinking they might want to go through that, what are some things that you might kind of give them advice for on the front end of that conversation to think through before they decide if this is the right move for them or not? I think kind of stemming from the article is just what is the reason behind why you're adopting? Because I do think the savior complex is very big within the Christian community, especially. And yeah, Tana's like raising said, her hands right now. <laughs> it's not a reflection of you showing up to church with your black kids doesn't make you a good Christian. It doesn't make right. you a better person. And I've seen that and I see it on like on Facebook. I've seen people announce their adoption and walk me through it. And it triggers me beyond belief because of just how it's being handled. And um, and so I guess just like navigating why you're adopting and then just understanding just like the multifaceted components that race brings to adoption, because a lot of people don't know that. They think, oh, if I'm adopting a baby, there's no trauma because my baby doesn't remember. But yeah, that's not what the research says. There's right. somatic memory, like your body remembers trauma. And so I just think understanding like just what what is that the research that's out there and what this is like for your child before you decide to make a decision as big as adoption that's great chris and leslie same same question for you guys as you think from the parent side y'all are on the other side of this now you're a few years into this journey um what would you want families who are considering transsexual adoption and let's say specifically thinking through um adopting uh, domestically kids from African-American descent, what, what would you uh, want them to know as they consider um, adoption? 
I think what we thought when we started this and what we think now are different things. Um, I think um, when we met our son, it was a couple months before Michael Brown was killed here in St. Louis. And so that just set us on this journey of urgency to get people to understand like the life that our children are leading. And so I do think that there is a level of we can speak to the white community and we have children that we're raising, but the reality is we're also not black, right? We're also not experiencing what they're experiencing ever. And um, I think you as a parent are going to have to take on a whole new level of humility in that space. So you're signing up for being humble all the time. You're signing up for your five-year-old saying he wishes you were chocolate because you're not the same as him. And he's not happy about that. Yeah. And that that's heartbreaking, right? As a mom, but also I want to advocate for that, right? Like it is a loss. He lost a culture. He lost people. He lost his parents. Like it isn't just one single thing in the adoption arena that he lost. It's, right. it's a lot of things. Yeah. And so I think that you're signing up for that. And Chris and I have talked this through to death. You're also signing up for some isolation. It can be a very isolating space to navigate the white world and the, and have children of color. Like that's just really, really tricky. And so I think that is, that's just a forever thing, right? Like, I think that there's, there, there's just a lot of layers to unpack with that and finding people that are safe for your kids, whether it's in the school community, whether it's in the church community, whether it's in the neighborhood you live in. Um, I think those are all real things. So those are things you have to be thinking through. And I think a lot of people just think, okay, I'll just like watch some YouTube on hair clips. Like here's the least of our things, right? Like, yes, it's, it's significant. Yes. I worry way too, way too much about it. Like I (laughs) stress about hair a lot because I want it also because I want them to fit into their own culture. I want them to feel proud of their hair. And so I think even going back to what we talked about before, these conversations are not one and done. They're all the time with our kids and when our kids feel like they're ready to have them. So this is not a conversation you're signing up for a little bit. It's a conversation you're signing up for your life and you're signing up to say, I don't get that. And I'm really trying and I'm really sorry. And I will sit underneath you and your expertise and learn from the experiences our kids have. And I think that all of that is a lot to say in the confines of just, I think it is a very heavy decision. And I think that like Ramia talked about um, and her and I have talked about this a ton. When you walk into a space and she's still walking into spaces, counting Brown people, Mm -hmm. if you're, if you walk into most spaces that your kids are walking into grocery stores, wherever it is, and it's white people before adoption and it's, you can barely count the people of color you need to like really think, is this a good fit for that child? Maybe you can do it, but that might not be a great fit for them because, and, and the reality is Ramia waited. She wasn't able to have that conversation or even not acknowledge that till later. Right. But Rami and I have had this conversation before our daughter, we got off of a plane in Florida and went on a vacation spot that was primarily white. And our six-year-old daughter at the time, who's white said, wow, there are a lot of white people here. And then yeah. she goes, this might be hard for Langston and, and Luna. And 
I need my kids to know that, right? Yeah. Like not only do Chris and I need to know that and it resonate, but my white daughter needs to know that. And the reality is so do all of the other people in our lives, aunts and uncles and grandparents and friends, because I need our friends to not take my kids to places that aren't safe. Yeah. You know, and I think that those are all realities and deep and I, those are just the realities of stepping into this space. And, and it's a lot of work. Because uh, before we adopted, I think like my thought was more than I care to admit was, eh, you know, we just go ahead and get rid of a few racist people in our lives and this will be fine. Uh, <laughs> but 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 uh, and to protect them. But no, it's much more systemic than that. Like, you know, you That's you right. have to um, have the systems, the environments in place that have to be inviting, inclusive um, and diverse in in all facets, and and and, and not, not not just in a token realm, but I mean, right. um, fully fully grasping it, um, because otherwise, that's not a safe place for your child. Well, and I I just think also even the whole like diversity component, like I don't know how many times I've gone into spaces and said where my kids are being kept and said like, are we diverse for the, the sake of diversity? And like Ramia said, bringing along these black kids to like give you yourself your savior complex, like are we being diverse to, to like show off this diversity or are we like really, really bringing forth their diversity and sitting them up on a, I like just raising them up in order to use their voices to, you know, bring yeah. all of it. Right. Like just say, no, here, I'm not going to say we're diverse. And then my white explaining all of this. Right. Which is why I love that Rami is here because yeah. she adds this layer of, and, and really she's the showcase, right? Like she's the one that can tell us how this feels. Like I'll never know how it feels for my kids, but I can sit underneath Ramia's guidance and learn from her and think, okay, I'll say it differently next time because I want that. I want that for my kid. That's good. I don't know. That's good. Ramia, thinking through one of the components that was just talked about that you got, and you mentioned in your story as well, thinking through the community you grew up in, thinking through the makeup of the church and the schools and the um, and the environments, the places you go as a family, all that. Um, are there are there some things that you wish uh, adoptive parents would think about beforehand in those realms? Like, how important are those components of growing up as a person of color in a white family that um, that you would want to, um, what, what would you want folks to know about the, that conversation? Yeah. So I think my big thing that I've started to wrestle with, especially as an adult is that when you have a child of color in your family, no matter where you go, like it's, it's so obvious and it, sometimes it feels like I don't get to opt out. And I think that's something that I've really wrestled with. Like any place we go, like there's my white family and there's that there's whoever is she a friend is she a daughter yeah. and and that was my life growing up like one time I showed up with my sibling somewhere and they're like are you guys all friends and, and I wanted to be like yes because I didn't want to answer any questions about it and yeah. I think that parents don't realize that we yes like I don't owe anyone my story and my favorite author is Brene Brown and she always talks about like you need to not everyone's earned the right to hear your story but I felt like growing up, I never got the option not to give it because if we're at church or we're anywhere, my mom's like, this is my daughter, Leah, and this is my daughter, Ramia. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, time out. You have a, you have a black daughter. Like, are we going to, we going to talk about that? Are we just going to like keep going down the line? And I just feel like 
it was hard and it was, it was really hard to like, I felt like I couldn't opt out and I never really knew how to navigate that. And it was, it's always something that I think about. Like, even now when I go out to dinner with my parents, if I'm just with my parents, like I know who's, I know exactly how many people are watching me. I'm acutely aware that there are plenty of people that probably have no idea what's going on. I used to think when I would go to Home Depot with my dad, when I was a little kid, that people would think I was kidnapped because my dad's this like big white guy and I'm just like this little Indian girl. Well, technically I'm mixed, but you know, it's like, these are things that your, your children yeah. are thinking. And it's like, I, I love what Chris said. It's, it's a lifelong process and it's a lifelong conversation. It's not like, okay, we talked about the biological mom. Now we're done. It's a lot. Li- it's yeah. lifelong. It's lifelong grieving for your child and it's lifelong navigating. And at every season of life, there's more to navigate. I'm mm-hmm. navigate. I'm navigating so much more now as I'm an adult dating than I was when I was in high school dating. Like it's just, man, yeah. You know, there's always something. Yeah. Oh, um, let's finish with this. I guess along that same conversation, the natural into that is people kind of squirming in their chairs and going, "Oh God, well we already did adopt, and now what do we do? Like, how, how do we make sure that we can salvage this and not ruin our children's lives? So for those who have already gone down that road, um, let me say, uh, give Chris and Leslie the, the floor first, and then we'll end with you, Ramya. Chris and Leslie, for those who are already in this boat, what are the conversations that need to be had immediately? What are some of the things that you would give advice to, uh, to start thinking to, resources to look to, um, practices to, to take in, all of that as they start navigating this? And I would say I would be looking in the mirror and and saying, what are we doing as parents to make our circles, our work circles, our church circles, our social circles, not just be mirror images of us? You know, what what are we doing that we're on people who look different than us, act different than us, talk different than us, think different than us? Um, Because um, that's a trap that you can't fall in. And, um, and, 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 and And the bad thing is, I mean, it's tempting, you know, it's, it's really, really comfortable, uh, to be around circles that are, um, just, just like you. Um, so, I mean, you have to be, how am I being, how am I being made uncomfortable in, 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 in what, what I do, um, yeah. Yeah. and to be pushed. And I think that the other, the other balance is our job is, yes, we need to be having these conversations about race and things that are happening right now. Um, but it happened for hundreds of years also. Right. But the other reality is I am, we should all be advocating for, um, lifting up our kids because right. Our kids of color are brilliant and intelligent and wonderful and amazing and all of these things. And I think the world doesn't always tell them that. Right. And so I think equal parts, we need to be putting so much effort into like, my, I gave my sister, this is an ex, a tiny example, but I gave a bunch of our board books that were outgrown to my little sister who has um, a biracial daughter. And she was like, Hey, you need to, she texted me and said, you need to diversify your library. All of these books are of black kids. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think that I was like, Oh, good. Like, I was like, I'm glad that most of our books like were reflective of the, you know, the kids in my family. But I think that because, right, those are mirrors of our kids. So we yeah. need to give our kids lots of mirrors of themselves and building them up. I think and if you have kids at home, there's a lot of that. And there's also just a lot of, I think Ramia talked about a mentor 
for, um, for us. And I think that that's absolutely true. I think mentors of families that have adopted transracially, but I think also mentors of people of color that you can sit under. So I think raising your kids up and and who they are and who they are, um, as, um, either black or brown or whatever their ethnicity is. Um, but also they, I think just like making sure that we have people around us that are pushing us and, and Chris pushed into that too, but that are really pushing us to look at our own hearts and say like, okay, where do I, where am I missing it? Right. Where am I missing something that I'm so sure of that I've got that bias, right? Because we all have bias and it's not going anywhere. I will die with bias. Right. And, and that is the reality. And, and I can tell you right now, I want to make this, I think I just keep saying to myself, I want to make this a space where my kids of color can come to me any day of the week and say, you seem really biased in this area. When you say that, it feels biased towards me. Ramya talks a lot about microaggressions. And obviously I'm guilty of that, right? Because I'm from a very like white base of white Christian um, heterosexual. Like I have it all, right? As far as privilege and perspective. And so, or in my perspective. So I think that as parents, we need to be building that foundation, not only lifting our kids up, not only talking about the hard conversations because those are real, but also I think like going back to what Chris said, looking at ourselves in the mirror, but putting people in our lives that are going to push back because I think that is, that is huge because you do your most change when I think others that you know and love are pushing back and saying, actually, that's not okay. And I think that does then provide a space for your kids in your home where they can come to you and say, hey, what you did is not okay. And I think that goes back to TBRI, right? Like I think in in every realm that kind of circles back to everything. But I think that in this conversation, I want them to be able to call me out every day, right? Yeah, yeah. Ramya, advice for families who have already adopted but are now wanting to make sure they they like created a home that is uh, everything it needs to be for their kids' development. Uh, any advice on that front? What, what would you say to them? Yeah, so I think I have two things. The first one is the acknowledgement that you will always have much to learn. So we're never, we're never done growing. And just for parents, like it's not their fault. Like, like my parents, it's not their fault that in the 90s there was no research no, nothing provided to them on what transracial adoption was going to be like. And so I, I love them more than anything in the world. And I wish we had had conversations growing up, but like they didn't know. And so just coming to the realization that there's always going to be, you're always going to have more to learn and there's, it's going to be a lifelong conversation. And then I think the second piece for me is just understanding empathy and just the affirmation your child needs constantly from you and the way empathy allows you to cultivate a relationship of trust and connection with your child. Awesome. I love that. Um, Guys, this has been really good and really helpful um, for all of us. And, and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we, will, uh, we will link kind of where to find your writing, Ramya, in the, um, in the show notes. And uh, look forward to having you guys on again sometime soon. Yeah, looking Hi, forward. Paul. Thank you all so much. Awesome.
Well, huge, huge thanks to Ramya Gunaisen, to the Homs for joining us today. Um, if, uh, if I re-referenced the article that uh, Ramya wrote um, that we got to read recently, we're going to link that in the show notes. And so if, you, if you've not gotten to read the article yet, oh, I just encourage you to read it uh, and, and just appreciate uh, Ramya being vulnerable, courageous, uh, sharing her voice with us. Um, and uh, again, it's, it is shocking all over again to me when I listen to that, that she is not writing professionally for a living uh, and traveling as a speaker. So huge, huge thanks to them today for coming on the show. Uh, again, over the next several weeks, we've got uh, more of these episodes coming with um, uh, adoptees who um, grew up in transracially adopted families. And, uh, and so and we are just really excited for, uh, for you guys to hear those. Um, if you got any feedback for us, please hit us up on the website, uh, through Instagram, through Facebook. Um, we're at, uh, empoweredtoconnect.org, the connected child on Facebook and, uh, at empowered to connect on Instagram. You can, you can give us feedback through any of those channels. Uh, we hope to see you back next week. Thanks to Kyle Wright for editing and mixing our audio every week. Thanks to Tad Jewett for the music. Uh, it's awesome. Thanks to Tana Ottinger for joining me and co-hosting with me today. And, uh, thanks to all of you for tuning in. Hope today was inspiring. Uh, and, uh, we can't wait to see you next week on the empowered to connect podcast.